So Lorraine, we've had a brilliant email into the postcards inbox this week. I don't know whether you saw it. It was actually for Margot. The cat. The cat, Margot, the queen, the cat, my nemesis. Exactly. Well, this lovely PR said, I'm getting in touch about Trish and her lovely cat, Margot. I'm currently working on an exciting project for a new cat brand, and we'd love to send a gift to her furry friend. (laughs) So Margot is getting (laughs) PR gifting. Can you believe it? We're not getting any PR gifting. She's getting PR gifting. I love the way they avoid using the word um, pussy in there, quite frankly, <laughs> which make, always makes me laugh in a carry-on way. Listen, I found out a cat fact for you because you know we know Margot's lucky to be alive. Yes. Your previous yes. felines were dead before this age through mm. accidental circumstances. No fault of my own. No, no, no fault. Do you know how old the oldest cat oh, ever God. is? Go on, have a guess. It's called Cream Puff. So Cream don't Puff. feel so bad about Margot. Mm, okay, okay. I'm going to go 34. 38 years old. Oh, wasn't far off, was I? No. And you know, Margot, now she's reached this getting her own emails, yes. you know, having pedicures yes. seven times a day. Um, Cream Puff, 38-year-old mm. cat, was fed broccoli, eggs, mm. bacon, coffee, cream. And a pipette of red wine every day. <laughs> Margot's going to have a rider oh now, isn't she? A goodness. great long list she of things. She is. And I'm also trying to do the maths and work out if she lives till she's 38, That's I'm going to be like, I'm going, I think I'll be gone. I think I'll be gone by then. <laughs> she could be my new co-presenter. <laughs> yes. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Trish, are your sensitive little ears braced because... um... We're going to be talking about bottoms today, and I know that kind of talk upsets you sometimes, aren't we? Potty mouth talk, yes. Well, we are, because our special guest is actress, comedian and author Arabella Weir, who coined the phrase all of us will have no doubt used in a changing room or in front of a bedroom mirror at some point in our lives. Are you ready, Lorraine? Yes. Does my bum look big in this? this? (laughs) Who hasn't said that? No, it doesn't, Trish. Your bum oh, is thank you. a pert little derriere. I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying these things on a podcast. I've got a serious journalism career, quite <laughs> frankly, behind me. But yes, it's a oh. tiny little bottom. Oh, well, thank you kindly. But you, you haven't seen it lately, Lorraine. <laughs> I don't want to see it you don't want to see it well it's mostly glued to like a kitchen chair these days isn't it or a sofa but enough about bottoms um Arabella is actually here to talk to us about her new comedy show does my mum loom big in this which is all about motherhood from her own dysfunctional childhood and challenging relationship with her mother to becoming a single mum herself so she's stripping bare both the appalling and appallingly funny maternal behavior she's encountered well it's more sauciness at the end of the show for you because and I've done this and I know I've done this as a former editor of Cosmopolitan I have talked to an expert about sex toys mm-hmm. for our how to win at midlife uh, later on in the show after the interview I've spent um, quite a few days researching vibrators and lubricants mm-hmm. I'm really mm-hmm. going to have to try not to be funny about this before, before because we'll get cancelled that's what will happen 
So that is quite a frisky thing, but there is quite serious perimenopausal health message that we want to convey um, with sex toys and orgasms isn't there yeah well there is because vaginal dryness and atrophy affects 80 percent of women in the perimenopause stage of life and keeping your sex life on track either with a partner or if you're going solo is actually really important for your vaginal health among other health and well-being benefits too but more of that after our interview with arabella And we're going to kick off the show today with our jibber-jabber about new beginnings and new starts because the months of September and October for Trish and I were always the busiest times of the year when we were editing the glossy magazines. I was at Elle, Trish was at Marie Claire, and we'd be juggling childcare, going back to school, new terms, all of that with um, travelling for the fashion weeks, which sounds very glamorous but was a little bit chaotic. But now we're both at home and freelance it's kind of a new start for Mm -hmm. us. And we're experiencing sort of all sorts of different feelings at the beginning of autumn. And I think a lot of women in midlife are questioning too, where they fit in, who they are, what's going on. Indeed. But first, we've got a few updates from the Facebook group. Um, Continuing our list of brain fog bloopers, Caroline posted this. She says, so I just went to the shoe shop to get a refund for my daughter's school shoes, took the receipt and forgot the bloody shoes. (laughs) Uh, she was actually wearing them to school (laughs) her daughter was yeah her daughter was wearing the shoes that she was taking back to the shoe shop yeah so she can't take them back anyway now Um, it's pretty frequent this uh midlife brain fog that's caused by hormonal deficiency Mm -hmm. and tara posted a really helpful description of what it feels like if you haven't got to that point yet she says My mind is like an internet browser with 19 tabs open, three of them are frozen, and I have no idea where the music is coming from. (laughs) That's me, isn't it, Trish, with all forms of technology? Yes, and your diary management. Don't forget that. Diary (laughs) dyslexia, I've got. Diary dyslexia. And meanwhile, my little whispering. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you remember that? My whispering. Woke me up in the night, that. to get you to sleep about grown-up bedtime stories helping to get us to sleep prompted julie to share her favorite which is apparently the soothing welsh accent of a guy called stephen reading a story on the car app about a train journey to aberystwyth we've become a parody of ourselves <laughs> i can't believe that you're telling me about welsh men telling stories about trains to get us to sleep it is no wonder that I'm slightly depressed. I'm not going to the front row fashion shows yes, exactly. anymore. But it does get better because okay. Emma says she likes to doze off to Andrew Scott, a.k.a. the hot priest from Fleabag, reading portrait of an artist as a young man. So that's kind of hotness and some highbrow culture all in one go. I mean, what more could you want in bed at night? Talks back to vibrators. Well, you, yes, yes, it, that's true. This is where we go all Joan and Jerrica. Joan and Jerrica. Isn't it Joan? It is Jerrica. In the not long ago past, you and I, Lorraine, would be gallivanting around the fashion capitals of the world this month and next in our former guises as glossy magazine editors. But these days I tend to find myself in a pair of track pants working on my laptop at the kitchen table. And it's not that I ever want to go back to that life. I mean, I did 20 odd years of it and it was more than enough and I really enjoyed it. But there is something about early autumn with kids going back to school, everyone getting back to their normal routines after the summer. And most people back in the office now post pandemic. And and some of my friends are kind of 
moving onwards and upwards with these amazing new jobs in their careers. And so it's kind of making me feel a bit, I suppose it's, I don't know whether I'm stuck or I'm feeling left behind or, uh, you know, I don't really know. Well, how are you feeling about autumn? Well, I don't think we're alone because lots of my friends Mm. have said this as well. I think what I'm feeling, and I mirror your thoughts on this because I don't feel left behind. I feel like I did a great thing Mm. and I enjoyed it. And I was a journalist for many years and I just working out where I fit in now Mm -hmm. at this point um, in midlife. Julia Samuels said to us on the podcast, it's really about who you are and who your tribe are. Mm. That's the crux of your identity. And you start to question all that when everything is in change and flux and transition. And we're going through all of that, aren't we? It's a huge change. It's like Asma Mir talking to us about divorcing at 49. And I guess we must be feeling what are our personalities now mm. that we're not <laughs> who we were? And yeah. What's our day-to-day life like? And yeah. our children are leaving home. Yours are leaving next year. One of mine's already left. It's just a bit, I suppose, discombobulating. Yeah, because I think you spend quite a lot of time trying to work out who am I? And especially in midlife, you kind of have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that and you're working on it. But I was reading something quite interesting on psychology.com, which says that identity, it's it's an ongoing thing. It's like it changes, it evolves. So we, we shouldn't think of ourselves as constantly as this one identity. We need to be kind of looking at and questioning and searching the new us. And a better question to ask other than who am I is how do I want to experience life so that's kind of a bit of a starting point for me because it's not a static snapshot you know we should be kind of feeling like we're in this flow of life and self and we're kind of evolving we're reframing we're reorganizing rethinking and reconsidering ourselves aren't we so are you able to do that have you been thinking yes because I am I was reading around this because I was like just a bit of Googling Mm. and I was reading about radical uncertainty because that's what it feels like to me, a radical uncertainty. And there is a kind of the idea that uncertainty opens a door to infinity and then you start catastrophizing about all the things Mm. that could Mm -hmm. happen. This was a piece Oliver Burton wrote actually for The Guardian. And what you need to do, it seemed to be saying, is bring it back to the now, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what you're saying, isn't it? What we're experiencing in the moment have a belief that tomorrow will be good set that as your mm-hmm. thoughts I mean it's a bit navel gazing but I do think you feel really at sea sometimes in yes. midlife and you just need some kind of way of setting yourself mm-hmm. back on a path it's a kind of who am I who could I be but what are my wants and needs and do you know what the main thing I've kind of worked out is I need to slow down and scale mm-hmm. things back to feel able to cope with everything that's happening you know we're not on the front line in the NHS we're not saving Mm. lives so we're not facing that kind of uncertainty Mm -hmm. and pressure and fear but we most women are facing a kind of change and if you can slow it down and scale it back I think that would make me feel less discombobulated but obviously my habit my addiction is manic Mm. Um, I did get a uh, message from you I think at about 6.55 this morning (laughs) so I'm like god she's just straight out of bed and she's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's on it she's on it yeah exactly yeah but, yeah, so so it's a, a bit of change yeah it? it is I I found this um website as well called lifehacks.org that's got loads and loads of really good little exercises and things you can do and they have one on 10 strategies to keep moving forward when you feel stuck because I know I, I do feel a little bit stuck I yes, think and just a couple of just a couple of the things that really resonated for me was it says that you have to get specific by naming it so you should 
say, I feel stuck because, and try and name the thing or, or whatever it is that you feel is the issue or the problem, because then you can start identifying how to deal with it, different ways of dealing yeah. with it. And also about kind of reconnecting to your why, why am I doing something? Because feeling stuck is often because you've lost sight of the bigger purpose. picture and what's important in your purpose. So for me, I mean, when I left Marie Claire, I promised to take time out for myself because I'd been working for 30 years, give myself a break and spend as much time as, you know, the last couple of years that my kids are at home to spend as much time with them as possible. And I'm still doing all of that. So it's kind of, that is definitely, and, you know, just checking in with that made me think, well, that is what I want to do. And that is my focus for this autumn. And that is my, you know, so I kind of felt a lot better after going through some of those exercises. So that was really helpful. Yeah, I think it's also, yeah, it is, it's about a bit of my stuff is the, you know, I've got to write another book and I will do anything to avoid that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm keeping myself busy, which is not making me happy because my why for leaving that world was to write a book and be with my kids a little bit more. Um, Oliver Berkman also has a podcast called um, Oliver Berkman is Busy. And the last episode in praise of idleness is absolutely brilliant on that slowing down and just telling us that the brain is not a machine and we can deal with short bursts of stress, but we're not really built to deal with this kind of consistent stress, especially in midlife. And I did a really lovely uh, thing this week. I went to a literary festival in Devon and I met a mental health campaigner called Johnny Benjamin. He's in his 30s. And he was the man who was going to take his own life. He was a teenager. He was on a bridge. Mm. And a stranger talked him out of it. Mm-hmm. Stranger on the Bridge is his one of the books he's written. And since then, he's devoted his whole life to making uh, mental health a kind of forefront for young people. And he's written this brilliant book called The Book of Hope. Mm. And it's a collection of stories from people about what gives them hope. And it's a psychiatrist, it's lots of medical professionals and it's celebrities. And he's written a a list of 101 things that give him hope. And he said, Mm -hmm. just if you just start a list like that, when you're feeling not who you are or who you could be, you begin to anchor yourself a little bit and you start to have some energy around being happy and settled and you know accepting where you are it's a really lovely book the book of hope by um mm-hmm. johnny benjamin if you could look that out i mean I, every now and again i think it's worth just reading a few of the things on his list and then reading yeah. some of the stories and it really you know they're amazing stories quite traumatic stories as well so you really learn um how people have sat with discomfort and terrible times observed it and been able to move on and still look back on it and it not affect them now so I think I found that quite helpful this week discombobulation of autumn I think there's also a little bit of a you know it's slightly different as well because of COVID and everything we've all been through during COVID and I read this really um, interesting article in the New York Times about languishing which basically it's it's called this writer calls it the neglected Margot, no, that's lounging. No, that's Margot lounges, not languishing. (laughs) And um, it basically says that in psychology, you think about mental health on the spectrum from depression to flourishing, with flourishing being the peak of wellness and obviously depression being, you know, at the the very other end. But languishing is this sort of state that you can be in in the middle where you're neither, but you're not necessarily exactly satisfied or you're not able to kind of, you know, move on and, and and get in the flow of your life because you're just a little bit stuck but you're not at either of the extremes so it's quite interesting just to think yeah. about that as a kind of an emotion
emotion and a feeling and how it what you might need to do just to sort of move yourself on and out out from that whether it's finding new challenges or enjoyable experiences or or meaningful work or whatever so you just kind of it's what what's going to get you back in the flow you know that you've talked about flow yeah. before Lorraine haven't you of like yeah. where you have to kind of energy. energy and flow of getting into something and doing it and it all kind of works so that that's kind of left me feeling like really positive about why I am where I am and also excited about all the stuff we've got lots of stuff lined up this autumn haven't we so we're very busy we're very busy yeah I think it would be great to hear from anyone listening on how they managed to move out of languishing Mm. (laughs) and discombobulation and and kind of find that feeling of that mojo I guess so if you want to email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com tell us your story anonymously that would be great anything we can pass on to anyone else feeling a bit sort of you know meh my teenagers would say a bit meh ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If I say the words, does my bum look big in this, every woman listening will guess exactly who we're about to introduce. That's right, we're about to chat with The Fast Show's Arabella Weir, one of the funniest women on telly. A comedian, novelist, TV presenter, actor, author, and occasional newspaper columnist, Arabella has been a spirited and talented fixture of British comedy for more than two decades. Apart from The Fast Show, she's also appeared in Two Doors Down, Posh Nosh, Doctor Who, BBC Two's Food and Drink, Citizen Khan, and Celebrity Masterchef. Arabella, who is 63, is a mum of two children, now aged 23 and 22, whom she co-parents with her ex-husband. And she's about to take her first ever solo show on the road. Entitled Does My Mum Loom Big In This, the show tackles her combative relationship with her late mother, Alison, a woman whom Arabella says emotionally abused her with great cruelty throughout her childhood. Arabella is here to talk about coming to terms with her childhood and we'll also find out how therapy has helped her rebuild her self-esteem and what it feels like when your kids eventually leave home. We'll also tackle body image, sexism in TV and find out what David Tennant is like to live with. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Arabella. Hello, thank you very much. Now, listen, there's so much to talk about here because I've been listening to you uh, talking about this for a while talking about how cruel your mum was right up until actually the very end of her life um, when I believe she even criticised you for being 
overweight on her deathbed. Um, well, she does. Specifically, the <laughs> yes. problem was I was eating mayonnaise. Okay. Well, she does sound. Um, she does sound awful, and I mean really awful. So <laughs> it's quite a traumatic childhood. She was a former teacher. Now she's been gone ten years now, and you're one of four siblings. I think because we're going to talk about your show, paint a picture of Alison for us as a woman and a parent to you. Well, I think she wasn't a parent. I mean, she was Mm. obviously biologically a parent, but she had been brought up very sort of grandly and remotely by her own parents. She was an only child. She had no roadmap at all. Born in Scotland in 1926, she was incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-educated, but not equipped for what turned out to be, you know, the sort of drudgery of motherhood. And I... I mean, looking back, my mum probably was sort of seriously depressed. But uh, the thing is, she was an incredibly funny, incredibly lively, incredibly witty. I mean, she was absolutely great. All my friends loved her. She was just not only not equipped to be a mum, I mean, quite literally not trained. She didn't have any roadmap herself, but she genuinely thought that, anything domestic had nothing to do with her um she was just I mean you would say once my parents had split up not that my dad would ever have got loo paper but if you'd say to my mother when I was kind of nine is there any loo paper she would go why the devil are you asking me she she just had no and she she also once said to you when you said I'm hungry um she said good didn't she well she was Scottish and she absolutely came from that Presbyterian punishing, puritanical, that all kind of hunger is is good because it means you're, you know, you're depriving yourself, um, you know, sating a hunger is, uh, you're the quick road to gluttony and then next you'll be enjoying sex, you know, it's all... I mean, this is the country that invented porridge. And I know it's had a renaissance, (laughs) you know, porridge, as my parents made it, was with salt and water. It was fuel and that was it. You were not supposed to sit around having a lovely meal. And the idea that children would be taught to enjoy food could only then lead to sitting around eating biscuits all day and thinking you were great. They both believed that denial Mm -hmm. was kind of the the, the way to goodness. And, you know, the the more it hurt... And, you know, I remember I was about seven when I said I'm hungry and she said, good, it's good for you. Not being able to equate. I couldn't work out how this gnawing feeling in my stomach was also good for me. So I it wasn't physically cruel to you, though, but you, you no, felt that no, she just um, didn't love you. There was no affection or. No, kind. no, it was worse than that. There was lots of affection, but in kind of huge bursts, but never going, look, I'm sorry I said that. It would all be. And always with a baby voice, it would be, but mommy loves you so much, my little bunny rabbit. Mm, And then you'd be thinking, but wait a minute, this is the same person who, I mean, obviously I wasn't analysing it like this as a Mm. kid, but you, it was very push and pull because of course, half an hour earlier, she'd be saying, I can't bear the effing sight of you. Mm. You know, why do you have to look like that? Of course, I still think about it now makes me laugh, but she'd say, do you know, she was very, as I say, very posh. Do you know, watching you eat is like having hot knives stuck into my eyes. Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. I'm uh, feeling quite a lot better about my own parenting now. <laughs> I think most people can feel quite good about oh. their parenting. Well, she should never have been a mother. That is no. the bottom line. She should have been an Oxford don with lots of devoted 
pupils who would have stayed her friends for life because she was an incredibly, had an incredibly brilliant mind and Mm -hmm. a voracious reader and was a really, you know, all the people she taught at at Camden School for Girls adored her. I mean, as you both know, and as anybody listening to this who is a mother knows, there is a huge amount of drudgery and thanklessness attached to being a parent. And I just think she had not prepared herself for that at all. Yeah. And to be fair to her, she'd had no roadmap. But that focus on your weight, I mean, it must have been very hard. And especially as everybody else loved her, all your friends loved her, all her students loved her. And you must have had this very complicated thoughts and ideas about her because they're all saying one thing and you're experiencing this other side of her. But the focus on, on your weight and the cruelty, you turned it into one of the most memorable catchphrases for Generation X. I mean, how did you come up with, does my bum look big in this, for the insecure woman character in the Fast Show? Where was where was that well, born, that personality? Um, no small thanks to my mum. And, you know, I'll do another show one day about my dad and my relationship with men as a result of that. But they were both very focused on me needing to be thin, about that being, you mm-hmm. know, a vital passport, if not the vital passport for life, which is ridiculous as well, because they were both incredibly highly educated. So it really ought to have been, are you going to be, you know, are you going to have a brilliant mind? But they were both very focused on me being thin, which I never was. So, of course, a therapist did I was going to say would, and then did have a field day with this. I chose the one profession, especially in the late 70s, when I started in 1979, I chose the one profession where you could be guaranteed that your weight would matter more than anything else you were bringing to the party. Because in those days, all actresses had to be thin. There was like a Hattie Jakes. There wasn't kind of ordinary looking girls. There were thin, pretty girls. You know, my contemporaries were, and I remember being in the audition rooms with them, Joanna Wally, Greta Skaki, gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous, slim girls. And of course, I'd be sitting in there feeling like an elephant. But in Arabella, you weren't overweight. It's not like you were dangerously, morbidly obese, is it? No. But remember, it's never what you look like. It's what you've got in your head. And I had it drummed into my head that I was the wrong weight and that it was all a result of my greed. And so I carried that with me the whole time. And then when I, and you know, when I would get parts as an actress, it, it would be ha-ha, despite my fatness, which of course I realise now looking back at photographs, I'm thinking, what was I thinking about? <laughs> but it was drummed into my head. And of course I was, you know, now pursuing a, a profession, certainly in the 70s and 80s, Directors who were in those days always blokes would say quite happily to my face, well, I can't really give you this part because you're a bit fat. Oh, gosh. Um, And, you you know, and I wouldn't think, I beg your pardon, that's out of order. I'd be thinking, oh, he's quite right, actually. And then when I started doing comedy, I focused less on what I looked like. And then when we were doing the first series of The Fast Show, Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson said, why don't you do someone like you who's always Mm -hmm. on about, does my bum look big in this? Should I have worn my hair up? Are these the wrong glasses? And I went, I'm not like that. And they went, yeah, you are. <laughs> then I started sort of riffing and and then I came up with, well, the thing that had dominated my life, you know, which was, yeah. does my bum look big in this? But when I wrote the book, never mind the catchphrase and, and the sketches in the show, I remember writing the book and thinking, nobody in the world thinks like I do. This, If anybody reads this at all, they're going to think I'm bonkers. Turns out. Oh, no. <laughs> So you wrote a memoir, didn't you, called The Real Me Is Thin. (laughs) I think for a lot of, as you say, a lot of women, it just exactly was describing what they felt 
and what this generation of women, because a lot of boomer parents were quite focused on weight, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. We've heard that from lots of our listeners, lots of my friends. So how do you feel now about your appearance? How do you feel about your great big bum now then? (laughs) I would say that that kind of demon that is he, and he obviously is a bloke, has been quieted a bit. I mean, you're never, ever going to get to a place of, don't I look great? I'm wearing a bikini and I'm walking down the beach. But other than that, I don't, I would say I'm sort of pretty content. Not because I think I look fantastic. I take care of myself. I do the best I can. I was never born to be, uh, to look sort of super thin, whatever I ate. So I kind of take care of myself, but don't go crazy anymore and just think, look, this is what it is. But that may also be because I've given up on sex. So I I don't have the drive. (laughs) I don't have, that is something I've said before and I'm happy to say this again. Losing my sex drive, which I guess happened with menopause, is in the words of Kingsley Amos, like being unchained from a maniac. (laughs) I just... I just, it's so liberating because of course well, he, I wear what I want to wear now and I still put on makeup and I dye my hair and, mm-hmm. you know, I exercise and stuff. But I just, I am not thinking it might be because I've made a comfortable living. It might be because I'm, I've got children. I just feel very fortunate to never be thinking, oh, I wonder if I go to Reigns, there'll be a single man there. I just never, ever think about that. I've got loads of them. Those, yeah. I've got a cupboard of them, a cupboard yes. of single men. Yeah, but the thing yeah. is, I don't care. You can keep them in the cupboard because yeah. I'm interested. <laughs> you mention children. I mean, have you tried to break the mould with your children? Because you, you've made a career about making fun of these messages and how you, know, how you were brought up and those feelings. Have you broken the cycle with your own children? Well, I'm absolutely confident if you spoke to my children, mm-hmm. I've got a boy and a girl, that they would say no. I've definitely never, ever, whatever I've done mm-hmm. wrong with them, I've definitely never, ever said, look at you, I can't bear to see you like that. I've never mm-hmm. commented on their bodies. There's never been any equating of their value and what they're eating. So that was essentially the message. My value was lessened according to my size in my parents' eyes. That was explicit, the message. But yeah, I think I've broken. I mean, they're both really good cooks, which I've never mm-hmm. been. They're interested in cooking. They like it. And I literally look at them and think, how can that be my child? How can that <laughs> so, person So be you good? did kind of opposite parenting. Do, do you think that you, is this the right word to use? Do you think you hated your mum? Oh God, there were certainly times when I hated her. But no, I think one of the best things that happened from having therapy and I think this is true in any relationship, whether it's work or your parents, your children, whatever, understanding why that person was like that. Because mum didn't wake up in the morning and think, I think I'll be cruel and unpleasant. I think she couldn't help herself. She was very badly parented. So I definitely didn't hate her. I mean, I never stopped seeing her. There was never a kind of, right, I'm having nothing to do with you. I think I learned to understand that she had been very badly parented. She never felt loved. She didn't really feel loved by my dad. That was quite a, I think they both sort of slightly settled for each other rather than being right for each other. And so I sort of understood where my mother came from. The only thing I blame might not be the right word, but the only thing I think she could have done was, this is a woman with money, huge intellect, absolutely no social or economic barrier to therapy, mm-hmm. but she didn't do it. Well, she did it a little bit and then didn't like it when they challenged her. 
Whereas when I, before I had children, when I was in my sort of early 30s, friends pointed out to me that yet another horrible boyfriend, yet another job I hadn't got. I just, this friend said, you know what the common denominator is? And I went, no, what? And they went, you. And I went, me? No, no, no. I did this and I was lovely. And then he treated me like that. And they went, no, you keep picking them and you keep sort of sabotaging yourself with jobs. And so I went into therapy thinking, I'm not going to be complaining about how the world's dealt me a bad hand when I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in my 50s like my mum. Mm-hmm. So I did sort of think, no, I'm going to go into this and challenge everything I do and everything I think and everything I say. And it worked out very well for mm-hmm. me. And how does your mother manifest in the show then? Because the show is about motherhood. I mean, you've got siblings, your own children. This is their grandmother. How has their response been to it as well? Well, you say grandmother. She wasn't really their grandmother mm-hmm. either because she didn't mm-hmm. like the way that I was sort of bringing up my children okay, okay. to make them not mm-hmm. sort of compliant. So I remember she'd been doing her usual, I can't bear to look at you eating and why are you mm-hmm. eating that? No, God, have you any ideas? All that when I'd taken the kids around there to see her and I, they were about six and seven. They're only a year apart. And, uh, I just said, mum, I'm not dealing with this and I'm not exposing the children to it. I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And I left. And my seven-year-old daughter, who's always been very sort of insightful, said, mummy, why is granny like that? And I sort of thought, well, I don't want them to hate her. So I said, well, mummy, granny had a very bad upbringing and she was very lonely as a child and isolated and her parents weren't very nice to her. And my seven-year-old daughter went, isn't she a bit old for that to be an excuse now? <laughs> The show is about the uniquely, in my view, difficult and rewarding, but difficult task of mothering, which I do think is harder mm-hmm. than fathering. So the first half is all about mum and the sort of horror stories from my childhood. The second half is much lighter because what I'm setting up is here's the worst mother in the world. Mm-hmm. Here are the stories watch me become a mother and I never once put a foot wrong and then of course in the second <laughs> half it's look at, look at the creatures I've fallen into yeah, yeah. a whole different set but look what I've done um so I tell stories about mum I also contextualize it what it was like for women in those days when my parents divorced there was proper proper shame attached to mm. being a divorced woman mm-hmm. all the onus was on the woman and she'd failed to keep the man I mean, you've, until 1972, you automatically lost, lost custody of your children if you'd been unfaithful, oh. if you were the mother, oh, not gosh. if you were the father. Mm-hmm. Until 1972, you what were an unfit mother. What do your um, siblings think? Everyone has different memories. And often when I talk to my teenagers, they say, blah, 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 blah. And I say, well, that it didn't happen. That wasn't how it happened. I don't, because how do they feel? They haven't you? seen the show and that's how it's going to stay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I was the one that mum selected Mm -hmm. for the, well, she said explicitly, she said, you are just the most annoying one. And and so that's how it panned out. But you've had quite a lot of therapy now then. So what age did you start? And was there an absolute moment or a situation that put you on on the couch? I didn't go onto a couch because my first therapy and my first foray into it and absolutely brilliantly was group therapy on the NHS at the Tavistock. There wasn't really an inciting incident. I think I'd got to 32 and I wasn't doing that well as an actress, but I realise now 
I could have been doing better, but I was self-sabotaging. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd go up for jobs and I wouldn't have read the book and I'd not have read the script. And then I'd sort of try and wing it, you know, in the interview going, oh, I know, sorry, I haven't really read this. And no, I haven't watched this show and stuff. Now you think, why would anybody give me a job? Because I was obviously turning up with exactly the same attitude that had made me so popular at school. I mean, not popular with teachers, but very no. popular <laughs> with students. Kind of, yeah, no one's going to get one over on me. Looking back, I think the main thing was that I couldn't be seen to be trying because if you're seen to be trying, you're showing your hope. You know, what does someone say? It's the hope that kills you. And hope was so unbearable for me. I would, you know, sort of self-sabotage so as to deal with the hope. So I think it was just that I got to kind of 32 and thought I seemed to be repeating patterns. And I'd gone out with yet another creep who'd behaved in a very similar way to the last one. And it was this male friend who went, yeah, but you're the one picking them. And I genuinely thought, what is he talking about? No, I am a victim in all of this. I went to the doctor and said, I think I need therapy. And because it was NHS group therapy, there could not have been a wider selection of society. You know, there was a guy, a refugee who couldn't speak English, two women from council estates, one on an abusive marriage who couldn't get out. It was understanding that everybody has their own problems and for them they're huge and that they don't go oh well mine is nothing compared to hers when I started doing this show and telling these stories as it were to people who didn't know me and certainly more importantly had never met my mum I worried about people worrying about me and someone said to me no because you're doing the show and you're up there and you're also talking about this stuff and then you're making jokes so I think the main thing to take away is I'm okay now And I've been okay for a long time. So, yes, I think I sort of broke the mould, broke the chain. And that was thanks to therapy in your 30s and and dealing with patterns you were getting into. I don't think I could have done it without therapy. I don't Mm -hmm. see how I could have done. And I still have therapy now. I regard it as like going to the gym. You just have to keep training yourself not to go down the hole where you listen to the voice that says you're not worthy of course, that you didn't that didn't happen for you because you're shit. And so, yeah, you just need to keep up the ability, the sit-ups that stop you going, oh, that mm-hmm. voice is right. What about your dad then in this? You know, we're talking about how awful your mum was for the reasons she was and how it's affected you, how it's affected your parenting. What, where does your dad sit in this? Well, my dad, I didn't live with my dad from about nine years old, ten years old. So when my parents broke up, mum stayed in London My father went to live in Bahrain because he was a diplomat. And after some very, very awful arguments with my mother, she said the famous words, famous in my life, I can't bear the effing sight of you. You're going to have to go and live with your dad. So I went to live in Bahrain with my dad for a year. And that was very formative and nice. But my father was by no means physically affectionate or vocally affectionate. He'd been brought up with no physical affection to speak of and if I would say things like I love you dad he would go right and then after that I never lived with him again and then he lived abroad so he would become this rather glamorous uh, because he was very good looking and very vain and very successful he'd become this person that I was desperately trying to get to like me Mm. and I remember going to see him in New York when he was working at the UN and I was 13 and starting Mm. to be a bit podgy and dad said oh right you're fat oh. and I as I got off the plane and I said I just, I'm so worried about oh. teenage Arabella I'm I'm oh, I'm really concerned about it I want to cuddle you well yeah I mean you can do that next time we meet Lorraine but 
I guess it's like anything in life. What doesn't kill you, mm. what doesn't break you, makes you stronger. And of course, I did say to dad, I didn't fall apart then. I remember saying on the tarmac, why are you saying that, dad? You, you shouldn't, mm. I hadn't seen him for eight months or something. Oh, and he said, well, I can't let help loving you more when you're thinner. Oh, and I, and oh I, my and God. I said, and I said, but dad, you're not, that's not right or something. I didn't oh, have any words. Mm. And he said, no, I remember this very well, because as I said, he was by this time a single man in New York and they were falling over him. And he said, uh, well, darling, I can't help it if I want pretty girls around me. Oh, oh dear. And I remember at the time, I didn't yeah. have the words to say it, but I remember thinking, I don't think I'm supposed to be a girl. Aren't I supposed to be your daughter? Isn't there supposed oh, to be a wrong between it's me and wrong. girls? But anyway, that's my dad. Oh, my so gosh. My dad, that, apart from that sort of thing, my dad was not, well, he wasn't as consistently cruel. He was mm. more mm. sort of dismissively, look, girls, they need to have gone to Oxford, of course. They need to have double first. But first mm. and foremost, they need to be gorgeous. Have you forgiven them? Oh, God, yeah, Absolutely. I forgave my mother completely long before she died. You know, I wouldn't send my daughter to China and just say, get on with it. And then if she said, but I don't speak Chinese and I haven't asked to live in China and I don't know anyone there, I would say, oh, Debbie's so stupid. Um, that was my mother. You mm -hmm. know, it was a foreign land to her. She didn't realise she'd had choices. You had to get married. You had children. Yeah. That was it. You just got on with it. And I think she literally hadn't got a clue. So I absolutely forgave her. And dad and I had a lifelong sort of jokey relationship where he would also say, darling, you're really going to eat the nuts um, when I'd go for a drink and there'd be sort of salty snacks and stuff. And I'd go, and then I'd get into a long shtick of going, mm. what, nuts are fattening? Now you tell me? <laughs> oh, Jesus, now? You wait till I'm 45? And then you're all oh, very funny. Tell us about your fabulous career, because you kind of almost always on, on telly for this generation um, of women. Well, it wasn't a fabulous career for a long time. I mean, I had lots of nice jobs where people were great and I was delighted to be there. But, you know, it's not really a job where meritocracy has much to do with it, because I know lots of great actors who've never cracked it. And it wasn't until I started doing comedy originally with Alexi Sale and Lenny Henry and I'm afraid all men. But you had a real talent for it. I dare say it was honed uh, in adversity, you know, by mm -hmm. single But that's singers. smart and clever and, and a survival skill, isn't it? Yes, uh, I guess so. Thank you. And then when I started working with those guys, then I suddenly thought, no, I really don't feel like a phony. Now I know I should be here. I didn't sort of think... I don't mean in a kind of gladiatorial way. I wasn't kind of going, hey, guys, I've earned this, you know, because I'm worth it. It wasn't any of that. I just thought, no, I, I feel like I'm in the right milieu now. I feel like I'm mm -hmm. kind of belong here. So I just sort of was working with all those guys and then really just sort of knew Paul and Charlie anyway because of them working with Harry Enfield. And then when we all came together to do the Fast Show, so I was like 36 then, and I remember thinking, don't blow it. This mm -hmm. is your chance. If you really try hard, you know, don't sort of defer when a bloke goes, oh, no, no, we're not doing that. No, you know, go, we're not having that. I am doing that. It was just the moment I kind of suddenly felt that like I was not only in the saddle, but that I wasn't coming off this horse. This mm -hmm. was going to happen. From that moment on, I just remember thinking nothing is going to stop me making the most of this. And what's been your highlight? What would you like all the listeners to maybe remember or go back and have another look at or rediscover because you did so much? Much as I loved the Fast Show and I owe it a lot and it owes me. But what I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that was a wonderful, wonderful time and I, I loved it. But I think if 
I had one thing I would want people to watch, it would be Posh Nosh, mm-hmm. spoof cookery show that I did with Richard E. Grant, because I just loved doing that, loved working with him. And I'm not a great cook. And I'm afraid I do think it's a bit pathetic when people go, oh, well, I mean, I couldn't possibly use that butter. You think, <laughs> crying out loud, it's butter. Let's not get too pretentious. So pretentiousness around food and mm-hmm. the expensiveness of batarga and <laughs> and all this. He just <laughs> so posh nosh. And you can see it on YouTube, funnily enough. But we, that was a BBC show. Mm-hmm. I so love doing that. Okay, we'll all be watching that. So we should talk about midlife. Words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom looking back. I don't know if this is the reason, but I had a marina coil mm-hmm. from, I don't know, 42, 41 or something after my last kid. And I don't know if that's the reason, but I was very, very fortunate not to have terrible mm-hmm. menopausal, you know, the classic ones. But funnily enough, the older I got into my late 50s, I did start getting the insomnia which Mm. is just bloody hell. You want to kill yourself with that. I have found that not drinking really helps, but I don't do that. (laughs) I know. I just think, well, that's what I've got Mm. to do. Uh, That is the price I pay because I'm not giving up drinking. Mm -hmm. I would have hated myself hearing this 20 years ago, but exercise. I walk about five to seven miles a day and that has made such a huge difference to everything. I mean, it hasn't made me particularly thin, but it's my mindset, everything. Mm -hmm. When I'm working and I can't walk that much, I'll do sort of 10,000 steps. And that has made an enormous difference. Mm -hmm. This is such an obvious thing to say, but obviously something is happening to you physically. But there is also such a mindset. I mean, I think you just need to be as happy with yourself as you can be and then go, oh God, here we are. Here's the insomnia. I never did HRT. This is something I've inherited from my parents. I'm a bit Scottish Presbyterian when it comes to helping yourself. You don't need HRT. You just go for a good walk and it'll all be fine. Uh, Don't be fussing about HRT and don't think about draining the NHS resources. Just get on with it. As I say, the best thing, I mean, obviously it wouldn't be great if I was still with someone, but the best thing is losing my sex drive. <laughs> well, let's hear about that. How we explore that, because you are very open and honest, which is very helpful for women. So you're single. Oh, yeah. And you're divorced. How long have you been divorced? He's been out of the house for sort of 10 and a half years. Have you been dating in that time? In that time, I've had two sexual partners, as a doctor might say, <laughs> and it was all right. But I was thinking, "Ah, I'm not sure. And then the whole dating thing I did for a little bit. Well, let's be honest, I did it with two blokes, neither of whom I slept with. And I just thought, I can't. I don't give a flying fuck. I don't want to meet your mother. I'm not interested. I mean, you're a mildly interesting person, but I've already got lots of fantastic friends. I don't want to take you to my friends. I don't want to start this whole thing again. I don't want to be discussing Christmas or toothpaste. I just don't care. You know, they used to say, don't go to the supermarket hungry. And here I was in the supermarket thinking, I've got not a scintilla of hunger. (laughs) Because of the kind of family I came from, my friends, when I started secondary school, were my family. They're still my closest friends. I have very, very close friends. So the kind of loneliness I might feel without a partner traditionally isn't something I experience because I have people I will tell anything to Mm -hmm. and will ask them about anything, including what I found out is called vaginal atrophy. Oh, yes, we've just done a whole section 
on yes. that. Don't you worry, we've got that covered. Yes. But when you look back on your career, because you've worked predominantly with men, and I read a really brilliant piece you wrote for The Guardian about sexism, misogyny, and the kind of offensive stuff that you put up with where you know you would walk in a room and and people would ask you to give them a blowjob or comment on your breasts and they would be either very senior or not very senior men do you think as a woman in in television and in culturally looking at it it is changing though not only do you see more women young women on crews which means that the whole building site vibe has has gone there's a show I do in which one girl is particularly gorgeous when she walks in in something figure hugging you can see the little light go off in the guy's eyes but you know they don't even dare look at each other Mm -hmm. never mind say anything out loud because they know that if it weren't an instant sacking what has changed in such a short space of time and that's what's brilliant since the me too thing is that we all know we could say I beg your pardon Right, I'm speaking to the producer about that. Now, in my day, when someone went, oh, nice tits, you were supposed to laugh along. And I don't think you'll find a woman in many industries that won't have had some sort of, oh, come on, line up, it was a joke. What's the matter with you? You're gorgeous. Why would you mind me saying that? It's a compliment. Whereas we now know there's a platform in which to go, I don't want to be spoken to like that. And they don't do it. Certainly on... TV crews that I've worked with and film crews, you just wouldn't dare. You have met lots of very fabulous, charming, clever, talented, famous people in your time, but we're particularly interested in David Tennant. (laughs) You knew that was going to come. Well, I think we love this story. Yes, yes. Come on, share, share. He is just one of my (laughs) oldest friends. We met 28 years ago on a job in Scotland when neither of us was very well known and we just sort of hit it off. I think I'm like his bigger sister. He wasn't famous when he lived with me. Was he messy? Was he tidy? Yeah, I mean, he's just just a regular bloke. He's he's an excellent person. He's a top top man well we're pleased to hear that because that's what we we expect him to be that so it's good good to have that verified but listen you've got the show coming up we're going to post the dates on facebook group and what else now for you what's after that well this show i keep doing until next april various dates so if they're not on the website it's arabellaware.co.uk uh Then I'm going to do another series of Two Doors Down, the Scottish Mm -hmm. sitcom I do that goes out on BBC Two. Then I might do a show shining a light on my dad and men Mm. and sparing... I think that's uh, brilliant. Sparing your uh, listeners' blushes, that show will be called Fucking Men. (laughs) Get it? See what I've done? Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on to Postcards from Midlife. And just being really honest and brilliant and fabulous. I hope your listeners don't mind the swearing, but there's quite a lot of that in my show, and I am a bit sweary. Sweary we're. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Arabella. Thank you, guys. Very nice to see you. Are you ready to win at midlife, Lorraine? Yes, I'm ready and raring to go because um, I've been speaking to Sam Evans this Mm -hmm. week, who set up the sex toys company, Joe Devine, with her husband, Paul, 13 years ago. She featured on the Davina documentary on Channel 4. She is a specialist on midlife women and sex. 
She's 53, um, a mum of three and a former nurse. And she works with her local Kent hospitals in helping women rediscover their sex lives, particularly after operations or cancer treatment and with those who suffer from vaginal atrophy, which, as you know, and we mentioned earlier, 80% of perimenopausal menopausal women suffer from. Mm. And on the uh, patient info website, which was set up by a previous guest of ours called Dr. Sarah Jarvis, there's actually a whole section on the health benefits of using sex toys for menopause and symptoms like vaginal atrophy that you mentioned, which is the thinning and shortening of the vagina, vulval vaginal pain and tightness, as well as like a lot of neurological conditions such as multiple sclerosis. And for some men and women, if you're on kind of medications for other conditions, that can also really impact sexual function and pleasure. You know, things like cancer treatments, antidepressants, apparently antihistamines, your blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So sex toys can really be of help here too. So Lorraine, what have you found out about sex toys for midlife women? I mean, where where do we even start if you haven't started already? We're going to start with skin safe products. Okay. So uh, as Sam said to me, no latex, no jelly based things, no rubber any of those kind of old fashioned sex toys, mm-hmm. as it were, are pretty bad for your internal vaginal vulva health. Now, what she said to me is, if you're starting out and you have any of the problems we've mentioned and you think a sex toy may be helpful to you in midlife, it's best to call the hotline of whichever company you want to buy it from because okay. then you can have a proper conversation. I didn't know this. You can call up, call mm. the hotline, the helpline, and people will who are trained, who have had a million conversations like this before, can talk you through it. Now, she has a helpline and her oldest customer is 95. <laughs> we love that but, you know because good. Sam says midlife women won't go into a sex no. shop um, and they won't buy things online they're worried about stuff being delivered but if you oh, call the helpline you will get sent a brochure and then you can look at that uh, it's very discreet some of these brochures are in uh, book clubs she's finding out at the moment mm-hmm. so what you're aiming for really is is orgasms because that stimulates blood flow um, and blood flow is really really good for all aspects um, of female health in midlife particularly sexual health um, this really helps prevent vaginal uh, atrophy got loads of healing qualities and we found out last Last week didn't we that it's really good for hair growth as well so there's not a lot yes. it isn't great for yes. blood flow um so sex toys range from 12 pounds all the way up to some of the new ones which are 160 pounds mm-hmm. so what are you looking for well, when you're looking exactly for there's it's toys? kind of there's a whole world of things isn't there and um you know yes. we need to know we need to narrow it down please lorraine you don't get this unfortunately <laughs> do you <laughs> Right. What you're looking for is external stimulators. This is the gateway sex mm-hmm. toy. Um, so these are bullets or pebbles. These are very, this is what they're known as. They're very small and there's no button as such for sort of varying um, levels. Um, they're just gently vibrating. They come with batteries. You can recharge them. They don't really look like um, vibrators. So they're, I'm making a shape of the radio. You are, here, yes. They're yeah, kind yeah. of round like a pebble, Trish. Okay. And that is for clitoral stimulation. Yes, Trish, it is for clitoral stimulation. <laughs> Can we make that a sound bite for one of our adverts? <laughs> uh, it's for your clitoral we need to stimulation. See. They're very small, they're very discreet, they cost around £12. The Joe Divine one that Sam recommended is called the Mimi Soft. Mm -hmm. then you've got your classic vibrator which is all the things we wrote about a million times in women's magazines this is internal and external stimulation it does Mm -hmm. have a button control if you've suffered vaginal atrophy 
there are some very good slim ones rather than going for the medical ones that are often recommended by hospital. Jo recommends these two to uh, her local hospital for menopausal women. One's called the Havana mm-hmm. and then the Rocks Off Havana, as in getting your rocks Get off. Your rocks they off. range from about 20 to 40 pounds. Yeah. Loads of different descriptions on the website. But again, call and ask what you think yes. might be suitable for you. Now, yeah. you remember the rabbit, don't you? We all remember rabbit. the rabbits, the rampant yeah. rabbits. Yeah. Well, they are in, they're much better made now and they mm-hmm. are not so off-putting. They come in lots of shapes and colours. They have two controls for clitoral and internal stimulation. Okay. May I now bring you to the Game Changers? Oh, something Just new. Just come out something in the last new. two years. Very exciting. Yep, tell me. These tell me more. Sonic Wave or AirPods. Ooh. These are the new kids um, on the block. Now, they aren't vibrating. They are suction. Ooh, so they interesting. pulse. Okay. You keep them still and they can become, they can start at a very low level. So it's very good if you have any medical ailments post-op and it stimulates all of your clitoral tissue because you know the clitoris is enormous well i'm exaggerating (laughs) it's bigger than it looks basically it's shaped like a wishbone um so often you're just dealing it's only with the tip actually it's 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 much bigger than that so um clitoral tissue stimulated is really Mm -hmm. good for blood flow that's how you find your g-spot our g-spot trish yours is different place from mine is it? What? Yeah. what? Everybody's is different. Everybody's is different. Yeah, so unique. This, a yeah. sonic wave or an air pulse is more likely um, to get to that. And lots of women use it before they have sex. So sex yeah. is less painful. You can use it in the bath. Should Ooh, you feel okay, like that okay. um, And it can really get you in the mood. There is a brand called Lalo, L-E-L-O, um, on the Joe Divine site, uh, mm-hmm. which she recommends. Something called the Hot Octopus. Ooh. <laughs> intriguing we know everyone's going to be jumping on that site aren't they after you this. call neil the hot octopus, <laughs> the hot octopus. arms and hands everywhere, everywhere. Mm. <laughs> they vary in price they're not massively expensive the new sonic ones but you know yep. you can buy really expensive ones if you want now there is something called a dilator toy as yeah. well which is specifically for vaginal atrophy, and they used to be prescribed. But actually, you can buy really good ones now that are much nicer than mm-hmm. the medical ones. You might want to look into that if you're having any kind of intercourse issues. Now, before you start all of that, you've got to sort out your lubrication. Yep. Now, you need to look for oil or water-based um, lubrication now, but water-based if you're using a condom in midline mm-hmm. because oil affects uh, condoms. What you need to avoid, and this was I found this really fascinating. It was a kind of light bulb moment, actually without giving you too much information is most of the lubricants even the big name ones Mm. have glycerin in them and glycerin is basically sugar and in midlife we are more prone to thrush and so all that sugar down there yeah not good not not good good so there is a brand called yes which has Mm -hmm. um organic uh lubricants around 12.99 for 60 mil but they go a very long way so um you just need to use them sparingly but they are Mm -hmm. really good for vagina and vulva health keep your sex toys washed with soap and water and guess what else you do with a sex toy trish when you've washed it you're never going to get it. I, I, I don't know. Where's my brain going with this? You I don't know. get your hair dryer out. Right. And you dry it with a hair oh, dryer. And blow dry fluff. it. Give it a blow dry. F- Give it a blow dry. Stop. I'll stop you there. <laughs> and then fluff. Fluff doesn't attach to it. Uh, okay, fluff. Exciting, right. Okay, so, right. And obviously you have to keep it hidden away from... from you I know. like to keep my <laughs> kitchen counter. <laughs> yeah. 
away from the, the teenagers who come rummaging through your drawers looking for, for your things. Yes. Jesus, yeah, that uh, was exactly. Shocking, that yeah, certainly that will. Yeah, exactly. Yes, so there we are. All yes. of your sex toy knowledge. No well, other podcast reaches the no, parts. Exactly. Because just, you know, big up to the orgasm because it helps you sleep. It boosts your immunity. It relieves pain. It reduces stress. It boosts brain power. I mean, honestly, we really shouldn't ever be embarrassed or ashamed exactly. about having them, thinking about them, talking about them, or thinking that we're too old to have them. You know, yeah. we're, we're, you're never too old to have 95. them. 95, exactly. their oldest customer at Joe Divine. And I, I was watching um, a documentary recently called The Never Ending Orgasm, which was a fascinating <laughs> documentary on YouTube about literally about women who have what's called super orgasms. But there's well, that's for another day. But there was a, a really okay. interesting sex researcher on there who said that sex is like playing in a band. You have to master your own instrument before being able to get in sync with others, which is what, you know, sex toys can really help you with as well in terms of your sort of long-term, you know, sexual relationships and things like that. But if you do have a health issue that is affecting your sexual well-being, it is worth talking to your GP in the first instance. Um, And your local sexual health clinic may also be able to offer advice. And if appropriate, psychosexual counsellors and relationship therapists can also provide support. Thank you, Nurse Halpin. nostalgia noodle time (laughs) oh my goodness again you don't get sex toys it's just gone gone yes anyway take me back take me back take you back to the 80s and 70s the 60s i'm going back to 1984 Mm -hmm. to telly again because oh endless source of inspiration yeah (laughs) um do you remember The Jewel in the Crown? I do, but I don't think I ever watched it. So I'm oh, going to stop there it. and let you carry on. Oh, I was obsessed. I was obsessed. But let me tell you why I was obsessed. Mm. Because um, Geraldine James, one mm. of my female favourites, yes. was in it. And I was listening to the radio on a long car journey this week. And they had a man called Tim Walker on who's written a book called Star Turns, which is about old Hollywood. All the interviews he ever did um, for newspapers with old Hollywood. And he's kind of put them all together and concluded various things. This was mm-hmm. BBC Radio Somerset. So <laughs> listening you That's, get for me you know, now. Top-notch listening. Yes, top-notch listening. And he was saying how all the men of Hollywood, the older mm-hmm. kind of those big stars, were so obsessed with fame they were addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And yet most of the women he interviewed, and he noticed as they got older, were not obsessed with the fame bit. They were obsessed with the craft of acting. Okay, bit. yes. And he talks about Greta Scacchi, he turned down Basic Instinct because mm-hmm. she just didn't want to be that famous. Um, but he also talks about um, interviewing Geraldine James, who had said uh, that she decided not to go to Hollywood and take up all this because Jewel in the mm-hmm. Crown was number one. It was absolutely yeah, nasty. Yeah. She wanted to stay. It was the, the crown yeah. of its day, wasn't it? Fackling. She did Band of Gold and all those mm. things. She wanted to stay here to be around her daughter and to lead a life that she was more kind of comfortable with. Mm. And actually, it doesn't seem to have held her back because her no. she's in Back to Life now, isn't she? She's she 71. is. She's in yes. Back to Life. And I, it just took me back. I just thought how amazing to see a woman that was such a significant part of my childhood in terms of viewing and yes. role models and on TV because she's so beautiful. She still mm-hmm. is beautiful. Bone and structure. Can, Bone structure. Yes, That's what you'd say about her, wouldn't you? Yes. And I can still see her now in front mm. of me, looking amazing, mm. being amazing, acting amazingly. And being quite frisky in that show, isn't she? Because 
she's, yeah, she's, sex she's after after an <laughs> orgasm in that she show. She needs <laughs> one of those. She needs the, uh, a Lilo, she needs exactly. A Lilo, Lilo rabbit, she needs she? exactly yeah. to get get on the hotline. Well, it's funny that you should mention uh, Back to Life because that actually sparked my little nostalgia this week. BBC. The second series is on now, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, highly recommend it. Very funny and hair crimping because in this series, Miri, oh. the the lead who is Geraldine James's daughter paid by Daisy Haggart Haggart fabulous very funny she basically is uh long story short she has she's been in prison for ages she comes out of prison she goes back to live with her parents and she's in her like teenage bedroom and she crimps her hair she's got this awful she's given herself a terrible little fringe and she ends up in this series she starts crimping it because she clearly finds the hair crimpers that were under her bed or whatever from way back in the late 70s yes early 80s 80s. yeah Yeah, whatever before she went to prison and it it was slightly triggering for me because I just remember as a teenager as well it's like you know when you're just trying to find a look you just hate how you look you're not comfortable I can't imagine that was your look Trish (laughs) well it certainly wasn't because I tried it it was bloody awful and of course, you buy these things thinking, right, this is it. This is going to change everything. And I'm just going to be amazing. And then you crimp your hair and you realise that it looks god awful. And you, you wasted £12.99 that you Did you use to boots. plait them as well? Like, did you t- oh, hundreds of tiny plaits yes. and then take it out in the you morning? Tried, yeah. school, and it would look that like didn't work either. Finger in a None of it worked. None of it worked until I discovered uh, Silver Queen hairspray and, or Elnet hairspray and backcombing. Backcombing did a bit of that. Again, but I yes. don't see it in you, backcombing. You don't see the backcombing. Like backcombing the fringe and then a ponytail, um, a bit rockabilly. Can we crimp Margot later? <laughs> We could. Is that cat cruelty? I don't it know. Is. Honestly, probably. well, you know, we don't know what's going to be in that gift bag, do we? Maybe it is cat crimpers. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's postcards from Midlife. New episodes are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider. And we would really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And if you could rate and review us too, that would be most marvellous. And please tell your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join the Midlife Conversation, which is what our private Facebook group is all about. So if you're not a member yet, do come over and join us. And you can use it to post any feedback on the topic we discuss as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear us interview and if you want to do anything more on a more personal basis you can just email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or pop a little message on the instagram goodbye